everyone. Welcome to another episode of The Big Picture with Iron Pillar. I am, as always, your host, Mohanjeet Jolly, co-founder and partner at Iron Pillar. And uh, today it is my, my honor and delight to welcome a dear friend, uh, an LP, and an incredible uh, technologist and academic, Mr. Stephen Sosinski, uh, to the show. And he's part of um, our Iron Pillar Network as well. So welcome to the show, Steve. Well, Haji, thanks. It's a real pleasure to be uh, involved in all of this. So uh, looking forward to talking with you. Awesome. So without further ado, let's uh, let's dive right in. And I will start the way I always do by having, you know, you take us through uh, your journey just in terms of uh, it's been prolific. Uh, there have been some, uh, you know, pivots along the way. But uh, but yeah, help the audience understand who who Steve is. So quickly, I uh, graduated from a school called Union College back east in upstate New York. It's uh, both liberal arts and engineering, and I got degrees in, in both of those. And then had uh, a really great, great um, few year stint at Procter and Gamble. Procter is is really known for great management, and I learned an awful lot in the management programs at Procter and Gamble, uh, working with a lot of great uh, executives and mid management people there. And I think that that had served me well in my career in the sort of bouncy world of um, technology out here with startups and that sort of thing. So after a few years of that, I decided to go to business school, got into several schools, was fortunate enough to do that. One of those schools was Stanford and came out and spent two years at the business school here. Certainly fell in love with um, the university, um, uh, of course, the environment here, the atmosphere. And um, I was offered a job after business school at Booz Allen uh, to work with them in their San Francisco office. And it was kind of popular at the time, I guess, somewhat trendy uh, that uh, business school students would get positions, uh, opportunities, potential at either investment banking firms or consulting firms. And this one seemed like a really right fit for me. So I did a couple of years at Booz Allen, but I realized that I was really more of an operating manager type of person than a consultant and got um, recruited away by, at the time, a really tiny company called Applied Materials. So back in the day, uh, this was the first real semiconductor independent capital equipment company. Now, of course, it's a multi-hundred billion dollar industry, maybe a trillion dollar industry for all I know. Uh, but it was uh, part of uh, joining them and applying my business school and my operational skills, as well as my management uh, techniques at Applied for a few years. That company was a public company. It, as many companies, either before going public or after, had a couple of near-death experiences itself and didn't know it would make it through various recessions, but it did. And of course, now today, it's it's doing quite well and still the leader in its industry. I got recruited away from Applied to join uh, as a startup called a company called Octel Communications, a voicemail company. Mm -hmm. uh, Everybody is very used to voicemail these days. We were the first independent voicemail company, tiny startup. Uh, one little tidbit about that, I was asked to join as VP of manufacturing. And I came in first day and the CEO of the company, I reported to him. He said, well, you know, I know you, we joined, we had you join as VP of manufacturing, but it turns out that our product doesn't work. So how would you like to become VP of engineering? <laughs> I've given up this great job at Applied Materials and, uh, 
you know, I had, you know, I had my, I still had my boxes in my hand when I was walking in. And uh, I said to Bob, well, what's, you know, tell me a little bit more about what's involved with that. So I actually did become VP of engineering for about a year and a half uh, and then uh, switched over, I actually became an EVP there in charge of engineering and then operations, manufacturing, customer support. Company had a nice long run, um, venture backed by some great investors, uh, took the company public uh, back in uh, the late 80s. And um, the company really did well, eventually got acquired for a very large uh, uh, multiple. But then I got recruited away from that and uh, ran my own company called Resumex. It's the first artificial intelligence based um, application, B2B company for matching uh, job requisitions with, with um, CVs and resumes. And uh, we used AI to pull out information. So in the old days, again, you had a lot of paper in these recruiting offices and no one knew anything about candidates or job requisitions. But we started to do all of this digitally and we honed the AI engine, had at one point in time about 800 uh, uh, Fortune 500 Global 2000 type customers, did really, really well. We uh, we encountered Y2K at the time, if you remember yeah. that, Mohanjit, um, year 2000, when we thought that the world was coming to an end and airplanes were going to fall out of the sky because 1999 was going to turn into 2000. That didn't happen, but it did put a crunch on, on people's acquisition of uh, software. Um, I did get an offer to sell the company. I sold the company. Then I bought it back in a leveraged buyout. Uh, because I really enjoyed the company an awful lot. And the company that bought it initially didn't really know what to do with it. So grew that out um, with the advent of the internet. And that was fun. Got another acquisition opportunity and uh, took that. Um, I had uh, a, uh, like you, I became a venture capitalist for several years uh, with an, a Germany-based uh, company. Uh, during some really downtimes in venture, learned an awful lot that way. As we all know, you learn things when things are not going so well. You never learn things when everything is going perfectly. Um, so, um, but that was a really interesting experience. Learned an awful lot about what the venture uh, uh, position is like. Uh, and then uh, eventually found my way to a company called SRI, Stanford Research Institute. And uh, it was a really unique opportunity to join a very large organization, half a billion dollars in revenues, but that was primarily focused on research and development uh, projects as opposed to products. And I thought that that would be an interesting thing for me to do. I was asked to help turn the company around from, it's a not-for-profit, but at the time it was uh, too much of a not-for-profit. And uh, we turned it around into a more profitable break-even uh, situation. We we grew out the commercial and international activity. Eventually I became president there and worked with uh, a lot of the PhDs and the researchers, fantastic group of scientists on their projects, uh, commercializing uh, mainly their, their projects into spin out companies and so on. I retired operationally a few years ago and have been now uh, running my own uh, family oriented uh, venture fund we do early stage pre-seed and seed stage um, investments, but we're also a fund of funds doing um, investments like, of course, with, with your firm, Iron Pillar. And we're very happy to be associated with Iron Pillar as well as some of these other firms around the world. So that's that amazing. snapshot is, is what I do or did.
Phenomenal. So I want to double click a little bit on SRI in particular. So for those the audience who may not know what SRI is and maybe what the model is, I mean, you alluded to the fact they're PhDs and researchers, but maybe a couple of minutes on, on SRI itself, because I think it's a phenomenal organization that's become iconic uh, here in Silicon Valley. Uh, SRI stands for Stanford Research Institute. Again, it was founded by Stanford and part of Stanford for quite a while, since 1946. Spun out of Stanford in 1970, the trustees thought that it was uh, too involved in defense work for our government and commercial work. And of course, Stanford is more about uh, research, basic research, and so on, academia. But it retained uh, effectively its, its, uh, its brand. It still has its original building uh, on Ravenswood Avenue in Menlo Park, has a number of labs around the country. Uh, it's well known for, I'll, I'll, I use three verbs, creating, uh, applying, and then commercializing. So mm-hmm. creating, that is all the research that's done for mainly government, the uh, federal government, Department of Defense still, Department of Energy, Department of Education, NIH, um, and so on and so forth. A lot of different projects. We actually compete against a number of different types of firms for those those contracts, for those projects. We win them and then we execute them. They may be short in duration, three to six months, but many of them are multiple year, five year, eight year, and so forth. Uh, we work with DARPA, the Advanced Research Lab. Uh, it was founded quite a while ago uh, by the Department of Defense. It has spun out many, many different interesting technologies, GPS, user interfaces, the internet, and so forth. We're involved with all of those to some degree. And um, yeah, we, we, uh, we're very proud of what we have done for society. Uh, a lot of our products, you know, for example, Siri, our, our most recent famous one uh, is now, you know, obviously owned by Apple, but it was created at SRI, spun out as a, as a venture, uh, fun- funded by three or four venture capitalists. And eventually, Steve Jobs, in his I think his last major deal, acquired uh, Siri. But Intuitive Surgical, the the uh, surgical process—that's the name of the company. The surgical process that done it is done by robots. That is a, a terrific uh, time productivity saver, and so on. It's built in, built up a, a multi-billion-dollar market cap, uh, spun out about 20 years ago. Nuance, the, the speech uh, technology company, I believe, uh, being acquired by Microsoft. Uh, but many, many other other interesting um, innovations and projects. That's amazing. I mean, it may be the largest, or if not the largest, and one of the largest, quote-unquote, venture studios, if you will, uh, in, in in the world. But that's uh, that's amazing. Obviously, you know, most, if not all, of the audience will be familiar with Siri as uh, as perhaps the most uh, most you know recent. An interesting and famous example of, of what came out of SRI. That's that's phenomenal. You use the term venture studio, and you're absolutely right. That you know that's it, become um, obviously more prevalent as a term. But right. uh, but we've been doing ventures for you know for quite a while. Uh, but the basic research as well gets licensed off to to different companies and is put into their products. We don't make mention of that. Some of the companies don't like us to mention that in press releases. Because it's, in fact, it's a little bit maybe embarrassing that their own research and development organization wasn't able to create what we did. But we view it as a partnership and a nice relationship. Interesting. I mean, 
Just uh, maybe a couple of uh, highlights, and if you want, lowlights uh, of the tenure at SRI. What what makes it hum, and and what are perhaps some of the the headwinds uh, that that you know you faced while you were there? So, um, well, what makes it hum is is I think that um, SRI. Remember, it came out of Stanford, and it still has uh, a lot of the qualities of an academic institute for researchers who don't want to um, educate students or teach, it's perfect because we don't teach students there. We have interns, we have a lot of interns that come from Stanford and a lot of other uh, universities and colleges for summer or even during the year. But our teaching is really on the job teaching with interns to give them some experience and so forth, but it's not so much in the classroom. So people at at at, uh, at SRI can be full time on on various projects, and and do their research um, without having uh, the overhead that they're in their own minds of hitting deadlines and and doing uh, testing of, of students and you know uh, grading papers and that sort of thing. The flip side of that is that since we're not a college or a university, we don't really have an endowment. We still retain the not-for-profit status, as I, as I mentioned, which is very helpful in a number of different ways for us. But um, since people don't, quote, graduate from SRI mm-hmm. um, as they graduate from Stanford or Union or Cal Poly, which I've been involved with, or many, many other schools, um, students, when people leave SRI, and they stay for quite a while mostly, but when they leave or retire, they don't think necessarily of SRI as giving back to them uh, in terms of an endowment. So it would be nice for us to have multiple billions of dollars like Stanford University and Harvard and others in our endowment because we can do much more than that than what we already do. Yeah. But there's but there's not much uh, to be able to do that. Understood. The, the other, I think the, the other is, is that we have an incredible group of scientists. It's really tough to make it at SRI. I mean, we really look for the cream of the cream so of the crop. So, so what does that mean is that uh, the standards are super high, um, that these are all incredibly bright people. Bright people get easily distracted because they really like different things. They're curious about many different subjects. And sometimes it's a little bit, you know, you got, everyone's got to be self-disciplined about hitting their deadlines, their budgets, their commitments to customers and so forth. So it's, it's um, you can have sometimes you can have some challenges with that. But those are those are challenges that are I'd rather easily deal with those than than with people who aren't very creative and inventive uh, or innovative uh, and have a you know kind of a boring uh, company. So I will tell you that SRI is always interesting. Every day there's something new going on. That's amazing. But tell me, tell me also, it seems like, uh, you know, the Stanford GSB thing that you've been doing, you've been teaching there for a number of years, almost in parallel with your uh, presidency of, of, of SRI, if you will. How did, did, did Stanford pull you in or did you say, you know what, I have this incredible experience across, you know, being an entrepreneur, being a VC, being an operator, being with an early, uh, early stage, you know, startups. Um, how did that uh, that marriage come about? I know we're being taped here, so I'll be. I'll, I'm going to mention one name while we're while while I'm talking, and that's that name is is Chuck Holloway. So Chuck Holloway is uh, a legend at Stanford University, mainly in the business school, but he's done 
an awful lot of work behind the scenes, helping out, being on important panels and uh, councils and so forth as different policy is being made at both the business school as well as uh, throughout the university has been you know, cherished uh, treasure for the various presidents. He was the first real professor I met when I came to the business school many, many years ago and got to be very friendly with him. He was an OR, operations research individual. And I really related to that because that was kind of my background in engineering back at Union College. We became fast friends and he tracked my career, you know, constantly. And uh, Chuck has done that with many, many people, as I found out. I still have a great relationship with him and even his wife, who um, I'm actually taking over Yosemite Conservancy, the chairmanship, from her many years ago. So, so there's there's a there's there's a lineage there. It's a uh, another story if you're interested. So, at any rate, Chuck followed my career and. Uh, initially, he came to me and said, uh, uh, hey, you know, you've been doing a lot of this entrepreneur uh, stuff in the Valley. How about, you know, coming over and, and spending time teaching one course at, at the GSB? And I said, OK, yeah, that'd be, that'd be a lot of fun. So I started doing that. And you're right. I started SRI at the time. And he's the one who recruited me into SRI because he was on the board of SRI. And he knew that we were really trying to get to be more profitable and also spread our rings more internationally as well as commercially and knew that I really enjoyed doing international work. So uh, so he's a common theme in all of these sorts of things at the business school originally, throughout my career, and uh, and more recently in some of the things that I've been doing. And he's still, even, even to this day, he just wrote a booklet, asked me to read it if I wouldn't mind given a few minutes, and, and of course I did. And naturally it's top shelf and it's it's a fantastic, booklet. So so that's uh, that's kind of the story about how I ended up at all these different places. Now, diving a little bit deeper onto the Stanford side of things and the course that you teach uh, is really about entrepreneurship in emerging markets. Right. right? So how, how did you land on that theme in particular? And then talk a little bit about, you know, what uh, what resonates with you about emerging markets in general? What is it that excites you about uh, you know places like India and Brazil and other parts other parts sure. of the world. At Union College, I was in the first um, a term abroad program uh, at the time. It was called. And now every college has got many of these term abroads, or spend six weeks or an internship over the summer in a country, learn maybe a language, culture, etc. Um, I learned German uh, at at Union, among other things, and then I spent uh, a term abroad in Vienna and got myself a job in Germany. And I just got fascinated with travel uh, initially to Western Europe, but then increasingly to Latin America, Southeast Asia, uh, now a bit more in Africa, certainly in Japan, China, and other places. And I just grew to really enjoy cultures and meeting different types of people and understanding what was going on. And then uh, as I was obviously here in Tech Valley and Silicon Valley, I tried to also understand what they're thinking about in terms of building new companies and was there really a venture industry and so forth. When I was teaching at Stanford, it was pretty traditional uh, teaching in the in the business school about Silicon Valley type startups. And of course, here in Silicon Valley, we have plenty of money, plenty of talent. Everybody's been around a startup and knows startup hours, working hours and that sort of thing, and plenty of market. So those kinds of things. And there are lots of advisors and board members and other sorts of ingredients to make 
this area that we live in very, very special. But that's not true of other places. Mm -hmm. And I noticed that the business school, coincident with as I was teaching, that more and more of the business school population was from outside the US and then outside the US, increasingly a number of students from Latin America, Africa, uh, the Mideast, um, uh, Central Europe, Southeast Asia, all of which are really developing economies as it relates to entrepreneurship, venture capital, and so forth. Hmm. Uh, many of them have very you know, traditional and civilized societies accepting that the startup community is very nascent in the areas that I just mentioned. So I said, why don't we come up with some courses to uh, deal with that, that audience? And I had a lot of cooperation from the associate dean at the time who said, great, uh, great idea, let's run it as an experiment. Coincident as well with that was one of the profs at, at Stanford was asked by the World Economic Forum to run a survey of entrepreneurship ecosystems around the world. So we interviewed uh, about a thousand. He got me involved from an SRI standpoint. We interviewed a thousand entrepreneurs all over the world and came back with a lot of data that got presented and published in a paper and still being used. Even to this day, it was about eight years old now. Uh, about what constitutes a great entrepreneurial ecosystem. Of course, you know, no surprise, Silicon Valley is the gold standard, but there are a lot of attributes that we won't go into now that people can learn from. So we built a course off of that, became very popular, built another course that became popular. So now we're doing a third course as well. And it's really intended for those students who come from those, those locations and want to go back and start up either their startup companies, not-for-profit, sometimes for-profit, um, or venture capital firms increasingly, or Americans who want to do the same thing in those countries and want to know what they're in for. So it's been a lot of fun. And the students, as you all know, Mahanji, because you're one of our great guest speakers, everyone is fascinating. They all have crazy, you know, really a lot of really interesting questions. And the commentary is, is, is quite stimulative as we, as we sit through these case studies. Of course. I mean, that's what's amazing to me is... Um... You know the diversity of the of the student body, and again, I've I've been involved. Thank you for inviting me to be a guest speaker. Oh, no, it's great last, to have you. Uh, two to three years, but uh, but the diversity of the student body is amazing. The the quality of questions is phenomenal, um, and and what's also interesting is that it's it's not you know purely just you and 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 Howie or others teaching, but bringing in specialists from the regions which I think just creates uh, that, that sort of authenticity around, around whatever the case or the geography that's being discussed. Is that something that was woven in uh, to the rubric, if you will, from the very beginning, or is it something you stumbled upon over time saying, hmm, we have access to you know, folks who either invest in or are working uh, in different parts of the world, but they may have a home base here in Silicon Valley. Why not tap into that? Uh, sort of collective knowledge, if you will. Well, it's pretty common to have guest speakers um, at the business school that other uh, lecturers, sometimes they're called adjunct professors, bring in. But most of those people are local uh, because most of the courses at, at the GSB, the Graduate School of Business at Stanford, are focused around either American or even Silicon Valley type case studies of companies and they've been funded by venture capitalists who are local or you know, certainly in the States. Uh, but as you point out, individuals that we bring in are from all over the world, Cape Town, Dubai, 
uh, just had somebody in uh, yesterday in our class from India, uh, from Excel Ventures. We just had somebody in um, a week ago from Singapore. Uh, so, you know, we've had these, these uh, Sao Paulo, uh, Mexico City, you name it. And it has become a lot easier. We like to have them in person and they like to be here in person because they're now looking forward to being part of Stanford for a day, if you will. And they'll take the students out, you know, for dinner. Uh, and uh, they just love to interact with the students. Sometimes they view them as intern candidates themselves or potentially even, you know, full-time jobs as associates or what have you. But they'll build their, their week here at Silicon Valley around our classes. And then they'll set up meetings with other VCs or limited partners or partnerships, relationships that they have in the Valley. So they really enjoy doing that. On top of all of that is when we can't have them here in person, which we like to do, of course, as I mentioned, we'll have them on Zoom. And eight years ago, Zoom was not very popular. In fact, you know, Skype was just really the only technology to use and it didn't have anywhere near the capability that uh, today's Skype or WebEx or GoToMeeting or Zoom has. Mm -hmm. And everyone is now more, thanks to COVID, I guess, everyone is now more accustomed to using Zoom. So we'll Zoom people in uh, into our class if um, it's really important. They're associated with a case that we've written and we want to have them speak and they can't fly here, then we'll try to do that. Got it. Now, I, I'll ask you two sets of questions. One is, I mean, you've had, again, a prolific uh, career as entrepreneur, again, technologist, early startup person, VP of manufacturing plus VP of engineering, uh, even though that may have been unintentional. But in any case, you've had, you know, an SRI and, and academia, of course. What, if you could, um, which part of it did you enjoy or are you enjoying the most, would you say? Or is it is it depending on the stage of your life that all of these were, were equally, uh, you know, incredible experiences? Is there a stack ranking that you have in your mind saying, you know what, my time at X was just uh, absolutely superb. Maybe two slightly different questions. First, I, I have, I take the opportunity now to just say that I've had, you know, I've been very, very fortunate in my life. I've had really a, a great career. I have, uh, have had a, a, a number of different situations that I've been involved with from a professional standpoint, work-wise, I became a board member at Union College and then chairman of the board during a really challenging time. I felt like, you know, we really accomplished a lot. I then became chairman of the uh, president's cabinet at Cal Poly and became very close with the uh, legendary president there um, and his his family and, and got to know many, many people at that very distinctive university of the CSU system. And I've had, you know, who wouldn't like to have had, you know, as many years at Stanford University just being around Nobel laureate level, whether they have one or not, level people, thinkers, researchers, and so on. The, the time at Octal Communications was very special because um, that was, in a sense, in a sense, a clean company that, that kind of went up and to the right for the most part, right from the beginning. And we just, you know, we're a launching pad for an awful lot of not just that industry, but but uh, but other industries. And it was great to mentor people. And I still get phone calls from people who have gone on to become CEOs and famous in their own right or venture capitalists or 
doing doing something very, very interesting. And I felt like I had a little bit of a, a hand in that. I really enjoyed the Resmix experience probably the most, but unfortunately we had complications that I now teach about where where a Y2K event could come up and slam you and you have, you know, your product is good, the customers are great, everybody enjoys what's going on, but but then you have something like that that can that can really knock a, a small company off the block for a while and you're forced to to you know to to do something different. It, at Applied Materials, I really enjoyed the people there. Jim Morgan, who's uh, chairman of the, and, and CEO, I'm still very, very good friends with, and we see each other a lot. Uh, but we went through a period where we had had to do a number of reductions in force and layoffs. And I guess the worst experiences I had is when I knew that we had to take some actions like that, and that that was not just affecting that person, but his or her family and you know career path and and so on in order to keep a company still alive uh, for everybody else. And mm-hmm. I've tried to stay very close to people who e- even who have left under under those conditions. And, uh, you know, fortunately, I've been able to, you know, in some cases, be references for them or help them. But those are the, as you all know, Mahanji, those are the most difficult decisions. Mm-hmm. You lose sleep at night. It's It's just really, really tough. But fortunately, I've been around most of the situations that have been, you know, very positive and We've been able to make it make it through without having to to take drastic actions. You know, being around SRI and all the different science and technology that's being created there. I mean, really, the leading edge and leading edge is fascinating. So I have nothing but you know, great thanks to you know, and it's it's fun to give back. I think that last piece is the one that uh, that really resonates you know with me about you, which is this sort of unconditional giving back and being this uber connector of people if uh, you know somebody can help someone else why not make that uh, that connection i think that's part of the karma that has uh, that perhaps has played a role in your you know your journey um, you know which has been absolutely phenomenal now i will i will end with uh, you know the typical question that i ask uh, every guest on on this particular podcast which is you know, I call it the the nuggets of wisdom. I mean, given your again incredible journey, what are especially for entrepreneurs because that's going to be a primary audience for something like this. What are the you know two or three things that you've taken away as an investor, again as an executive, perhaps working with startups, being part of startups, and obviously founding your own company? What are what are two or three things? It could be good or or not so good. But uh, what what are sort of the these nuggets of wisdom that you would have for them? You know, many things, but let me let me try uh, a, a couple that that really resonate with me, literally all the time because I get asked by students an awful lot as they're starting to think about their business. So um, the the first thing I I, I I talk about with them, and first thing where I'm starting up another company is to talk about their vision. How do they see this new market or the change of a of a of an old market, the dynamics that are going on and so forth? So, what is their vision of what they want to accomplish? What does the world look like in their domain ten years from now? And then, um, how are they going to get out of the blocks? What are they thinking about as their first offering, their first product, their first service, or whatever they're thinking about? And we all know focus, 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 and don't confuse your product with your vision, your first product, your MVP, your minimal viable product, or whatever you want to call it. 
Mm. I see too many um, too many entrepreneurs who want to create their vision overnight, and that includes an awful lot of things that are not necessary to get out and get a beachhead and get some customers who are really loving and enjoying your product and would never give it back to you once you sold it to them. So that ultimately ends up with product market fit, of course. Hmm. So um, those, those things really weave together. And when people get confused, they think they have product market fit when they've created a product that they themselves think is cool, but they haven't had it experienced by customers, real customers, paying customers in the field, not freemium, but real paying customers, then, you know, the red lights uh, start going on and the red flags start going up and, and you really need to stop spending money and really thinking about, about that. So, so that's number one is, 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 is how you get out uh, the door and, and make sure that your vision is big enough that, um, that all the hard work you're going to put into it. And remember your time and, and attention matters and it's, it's worthwhile that um, that it's going to be equal to that to that big opportunity that you have. Second is to um, that that your first set of hires um, are going to be the most important hires that you make for the company because you're effectively setting again, Mahanjit, as you well know, the culture and the tone and the style and the value system for your own company. Um, I've had to go in to several companies and and turn them around, quote unquote. And they've had good good bones in way of technology or architecture, but they just weren't managed correctly. And trying to undo some bad habits um, and try to instill some good habits, like I worked at Procter & Gamble, I, I told you some of the yeah. things that still use those techniques, sometimes very, very difficult because the culture is already set up and uh, changing culture um, as they say, uh, you know, changing uh, culture is, is a lot a lot harder than changing strategy and culture basically, you know, trumps all of all of that. Yeah. So you really have to be careful about that. And and so get the smartest people you can um, get people who are flexible, as I was when I joined that one company and moved from, you know, within one nanosecond from VP of manufacturing to VP of engineering, people who can handle different different types of things who look forward to challenges who won't get beat down. I do like, unfortunately, unfortunately, I like people who are competitive, who, are, who have been in competitive situations, generally sports, but it could be other situations and where they really, really enjoy challenges and, and, and go at going after things and really, and turn them loose and don't try to micromanage them, work with them as partners and, and get them to, um, uh, to really enjoy their, their positions and their responsibilities. So those are the kinds of things that that you know that early on, and even in later stages, if you take over a company that's, you know, in the dumpers for some reason or another, get back to those kinds of basics, um, and 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 set that communication path for your for your employees. Amazing. Actually, I'll I'll add one. It's uh, I'm I'm Indian, so you know, buy two get one free sort of uh, resonates with me. <laughs> so uh, so one additional question, I guess, around entrepreneurs that you meet uh, or advise or work with uh, from out, from other countries and that are targeting, let's say, the U.S. market. Is, is there, um, uh, you know, is there a pattern that you've seen? Is it, uh, you know, are these folks sort of 
forces of nature saying, you know what, I'm going to go ahead, uh, go head to head against incumbents. Maybe they're well-funded startups or existing, you know, public companies, but I'm going to go and disrupt, even though I may be developing my product in India or Latin America or Southeast Asia or elsewhere. Uh, have you have you seen certain sort of character traits of um, of entrepreneurs, especially the ones that that you're attracted to or or enamored with, that just stand out for you? What are and if so, you know, what are some of those traits? Especially again, putting on the lens of looking at somebody from outside of Silicon Valley or outside of U.S. A number of uh, the entrepreneurs that we've invested in, our family business um, invested in, or VCs like you know like yourself. They have a, a company in your portfolio and get introduced and that sort of thing. And some of them think that, you know, no big deal. Uh, America's got a huge market. There's plenty of money here in the Valley and, you know, let's go for it. And that sometimes takes some work to do with those, those folks. Yeah. Um, I like to work with, with people who are um, walking in with the idea that, you know, maybe the product that they've developed in, Nigeria or in Latin America somewhere or over, you know, in Eastern Europe or in India is, is, can be used here in the States, but Hey, let's first do a market analysis. Let's, let's get some real, you know, America, like I wouldn't go into a country in their situation. I wouldn't go from the U S into Brazil unless I got a great Brazilian partner who really understood the culture, the way that things get done, everything about the market that I could understand the sales process and, and 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 so on. I tell them the same thing uh, here when they we come here. Let's find somebody for you to partner up with, so we you know it's a lot easier to do an analysis before spending tons of money going after you know a market when your product is not quite right and it really needs to be um, uh, ginned up this way as opposed to that way and yeah. and so on. Where they you know where they want to have their domicile? Do they want to have it here in Silicon Valley? Is it a product that's more because it's a, a maybe it's a product that's that's better for the Midwest part of our country, in, in which case they got to be in Chicago or Kansas City or somewhere. So I try to really understand better what they're doing, why they're doing what they're doing. Um, are they also looking for a Silicon Valley investor in addition to going after this market? Um, sometimes that is extremely helpful, as you know, because having a foreign foreigner come in without any money uh, venture fund that's that's helping them out that's not familiar to this market can be a little bit of a red flag. But if you can get somebody to support you, um, yeah. that also helps. So there's a lot of things that are, it isn't just kind of showing up and getting shown around a little bit and then jumping into the market. It really is thinking things through. Spot on. And look, I mean, you know, the reason we built out the Iron Pillar Network and twisted folks like yourself into, into joining uh, is, is because of, you know, what you've just talked about, uh, you know, folks, young entrepreneurs who are maybe first time entrepreneurs who are building something meaningful from India for the world, let's say the Americas need advice, need mentorship, need connections. Uh, and, and while of course the Iron Pillar team is there, we decided, you know, uh, early on as part of our design to bring in folks who were either domain experts or functional experts and well-connected and you know, empathetic and, and, and just sort of uber connectors uh, like yourself. So we are humbled and delighted to have you as part of our ecosystem. So thank you for all you do for Iron Pillar and our entrepreneurs. And thank you for your time today. This has been absolutely wonderful.
Well, I've enjoyed it, Manjeet. And of course, I've enjoyed the relationship with you and with, with all the people who are sort of like you, uh, who come from all these different geographies and different cultures and understanding of, of these different markets and are willing to give us some time uh, in our classes. You know, as you know, this is a, this valley is great about sharing information. And in most most geographies, you don't see that. People are wanting to hold back on their on their ideas or their information. I feel like when we bring you in, you're opening up a whole new world for our students. And if I can help you out, then I'm reciprocating and and the world is a better place, how that all works out. And that's true of all the, both the entrepreneurs as well as the VCs that we bring in into our classes, into SRI or wherever it is. So thank you. Well said. Well, with that, uh, we'll, we'll bring this to a conclusion. Thank you again so much, Steve, for your time. Thanks, Mohanjit.